0: Thank you. Something I've discovered in international teaching is that some cultures prize independent thinking more than others. The Bible teaches that all people in all places in every age have sought independence of at least one kind, independence from God. God made us in his image. He made us to correspond to him. He knows that we flourish when we are dependent on him. The sin nature within us rebels, convinced that we will be most happy if we are independent. Sadly, this is true of many professing Christians. They feel obligated to solve their own problems, and so they wrestle with all the implications of day-to-day affairs. There's very little joy or peace in their daily Christian experience, all because they are trying to live the Christian life by their own effort. To live independent of God is to live a greatly burdened life. Usually, these independent Christians are frustrated and berate themselves for their inability to produce joy and peace They haven't learned that the secret to a happy, joy, and peace-filled Christian life is trust and dependence. In our last lesson, we discovered that Jacob was not the man of great faith that Abraham was. Jacob was a schemer and a deceiver. He trusted his own wit rather than trusting God, but God didn't leave Jacob in this condition. He had the same goal for Jacob's life that he has for each one of us. He wanted Jacob to live in complete, moment-by-moment, dependence on him. Now, this process by which we believers grow in grace and learn dependence on God, you may know, is called sanctification. Although our sanctification has a definite beginning when we are regenerated, and a definite completion upon our death and the receiving of our new bodies. During our lifetime, it will be an ongoing process. We won't be perfectly like Christ in this life, but the fact is that some believers experience a greater measure of sanctification than others. And this is because it requires our cooperation. Our role. Is entire surrender, perfect trust, and constant yielding. We are only to ensure no barrier comes between us and the one on whom we are fully dependent. Our role is contentedness with the circumstances with which He surrounds us. Our role is to keep our eyes on Jesus and trust him completely, moment by moment. Well, Jacob couldn't proceed in this process of sanctification as long as he continued putting his confidence in his own manipulations. He had to learn to trust God to defend him rather than resorting to his old self-dependent schemes. According to Genesis 32 to 36, that is what happened. Little by little, Jacob learned that there was nothing and no one he could fully rely on except God. Complete moment-by-moment dependence is the Christian secret to a happy life. Now, we recall that when Jacob left Canaan to find a wife, 20 years earlier, he'd had a dream in which angels were ascending and descending a stairway. And now, in chapter 32, we find Jacob back en route to Canaan with his four wives, his 11 sons, and many possessions. And the first thing we learn about his return in verse 1 is that angels met him. Surely this reminded him of his dream in which the Lord promised to protect him and bring him back safely to Canaan. As evidence that God was with him, the camp of angels was alongside Jacob's own camp. So Jacob named the place Mahanaim, meaning two camps. This should have been a very encouraging experience to Jacob since he was quite anxious about meeting his twin brother Esau. Remember that although Jacob's stated excuse for leaving Canaan was to find a wife, the more pressing reason was that Esau had intended to murder him. Therefore, Jacob sent his brother a humble message informing him of his return. The messengers came back with word that Esau was coming to meet him, accompanied by 400 men. Well, this became the occasion of a model prayer, unlike any other recorded in Genesis. I think every believer can probably improve his or her prayer life by following it. First, Jacob reminded himself who he was addressing. And second, Jacob humbly thanked the Lord for all he had done for him. Third, he petitioned for help, asking the Lord to save him. Fourth, Jacob honestly confessed his feelings, saying he was afraid. And finally, Jacob reminded God of his promises to make him prosper and give him numerous descendants. While having committed himself and his family to the Lord, Jacob then decided to send Esau a gift. You know, the question that begs to be answered is whether, having prayed, Jacob took wise action in offering Esau this gift, or whether he was resorting to his old habit of scheming and manipulating to get what he wanted. But really, giving the gift wasn't the issue. In and of itself, it may have been a good and generous act. The issue was whether Jacob would place his confidence in his own resourcefulness or in God alone. Jacob and his family settled down for the night on the north side of the Jabbok River, the border of Canaan. In the middle of the night, Jacob made another decision. He would send his family ahead across the river. So he got up, and after helping them cross the river, it seems he went back to the north side to sleep alone. In verse 24, we find that the, this very mysterious statement that A man wrestled with Jacob till daybreak. A man wrestled with Jacob. Who was this man? Well, there appear to be three possibilities. A mortal human being wrestled with Jacob. An angel wrestled with Jacob. Or God wrestled with Jacob. Two passages help clarify this for us. One is in Genesis 32, 30 in which Jacob, having completed the struggle, named the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. However, Genesis 33.20 tells us that no one can see God face to face and live, so we might still question how this could be. The second helpful passage is in Hosea 12, verses 4 and 5 in which Hosea refers to Jacob wrestling with an angel. Very significantly, however, Hosea then identifies the angel as the Lord himself. Now, although our present passage doesn't use the term angel of the Lord, we've learned from earlier uses of that term that it refers to a unique physical manifestation of the Lord known as a a theophany or a Christophany. Since the only person of the Holy Trinity known to appear in human flesh is the Son of God, we're specifically led to identify Jesus in some pre-incarnate form as the angel of the Lord and the one with whom Jacob wrestled. This interpretation resolves any concern about the inability of humans to see God the Father face to face, and live. Now, it's not without significance that this man who wrestled with Jacob approached him at this particular location. For once Jacob crossed the Jabbok, he would be re-entering Canaan. Would the Lord allow the scheming Jacob back into the promised land without Jacob first inwardly? Entering into the promised land of dependence on God. Once we identify the man as God, specifically Jesus, a second question arises. What was God doing attacking Jacob and yet being unable or unwilling to defeat him? John Calvin says, Moses was writing after the manner of men here describing what God had predetermined to do for his own purposes. As another scholar explains, on the one hand, God allows, even puts his people into difficult or impossible situations, but it's the same God who delivers us from them. Calvin put it this way, God fights against us with his left hand, and for us with his right hand. In other words, if you're wrestling with the Lord, seeking to preserve a sense of control over your own life, you may just find your circumstances going from bad to worse, while at the same time experiencing increasing conviction that God is the one allowing it all for your good. Well, the match ended when the man wrenched Jacob's hip. Jacob, the schemer and manipulator, finally encountered someone he couldn't defeat with his own skills. As it turns out, the blow left Jacob with a limp. But it was God's loving wounding. Any person's choice to resist God will end up in crippling. The greater our resistance to him, the more of a limp we may be left with. It could be bodily damage resulting from addictions, the loss of relationships, or the loss of potential influence. These are just a few examples. Once our struggle to resist Christ's lordship ends, we discover that to be humbled under his powerful, loving hand is actually to be begin a life of true and rich blessing. Those who've entered this submitted life find God willing to work through their weaknesses, infirmities, and past failures to bring about blessings that exceed their wildest imaginations. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones was once asked, What does a person look like who's truly met God? alluding to our passage genesis 32:31 he replied the man who's wrestled with god walks with a limp you see after encountering the living christ jacob was forever crippled both physically and in regard to his ego He could no longer strut around arrogantly as he'd done before. His pride turned to lowliness, His greed turned to generosity. And his self-reliance had turned into worship. God won the battle. And Jacob's burden of self-sufficiency was removed. Well, the man asked Jacob to confess his name a statement of his character. For as we learned, Jacob meant to take advantage of or to deceive. Then the Lord renamed Jacob Israel. In the Bible, a midlife renaming indicates a change of the care in the character or the, the person who's renamed. Simon Peter and the Apostle Paul were others who were renamed. Hebrew Bible scholars have had difficulty agreeing on the meaning of the name Israel. But most commonly, it's understood to mean one of two things. He struggles with God, or God fights. Now, obviously, there's some ambiguity about who is fighting or struggling, God or Jacob. In reality, both were true. Jacob struggled with God, yet God did and would fight on Jacob's behalf. Well, Jacob's encounter with this man would have brought him a new realization. His past struggles, particularly with Esau and Laban, had resulted from his unwillingness to trust God to fight on his behalf. He relied on his own skills, his own ability to scheme and manipulate others, rather than relying on God. Jacob had insisted on living by his own wit. His real fight all along had been with God. But God wasn't going to allow Jacob to enter the promised land in his own strength. Both the wounding of Jacob's hip and his new name suggest that he was transformed into a humble man who understood that to fear and depend on God was to be blessed. (laughs) Now, in chapter 33, we're told that when Jacob saw Esau approaching, he divided his family, lining them up with his favorite, Rachel, in the back, Leah in the middle, and his maidservant wives in the front. Then he ran ahead of all of his family to meet Esau. He still felt afraid, but now God was fighting for him and he would trust God with the outcome. As it turns out, both Jacob and Esau had become different men than when they last saw one another. Esau ran and embraced Jacob, refusing, initially, Jacob's gift. Jacob, for his part, previously had been a taker and was now a giver, insisting that Esau keep the gift. Now, there's no deceit in Jacob's statement of intent to travel apart from Esau, until I come to my Lord in Seir, that's where Esau lived. That statement is in chapter 33, verse 14. Jacob was indicating that eventually he might pay him a visit there. Now, meanwhile, Jacob set up camp at Succoth on the eastern side of the Jordan Valley. This was apparently a quite lengthy stay. Remember, his marriages had occurred 14 years earlier, so his children were still young at this point. But in the following chapter, when he relocated to Shechem, the second to the youngest of his 11 children, Dinah, was no longer a child. Shechem was west of the Jordan River and within Canaan proper. Jacob bought a plot of ground in Shechem, an indication of his faith in God's promise that is, the eventual possession of Canaan. This was the second piece of real estate in Canaan acquired by the patriarchs. The main lesson of chapter 32 is that God didn't allow Jacob to re-enter the promised land without forcing him to confront his lifelong habit of self-reliance. Self-sufficiency is incompatible With the work of God. Have you thought about that recently? Self sufficiency is simply incompatible with the work of God. Up to the time of his wrestling match with God, Jacob's life has been a picture of the person who seeks to live the Christian life in his or her own strength. These Christians understand that belonging to Christ means becoming Christ-like, so they try to present an image of maturity that they haven't genuinely achieved. And this is a great burden. I can speak from experience. I've done that at times myself. And it leaves us fearful. Fearful others will discover how truly inadequate we really are. Christians in this place may have been a believer for a long time, but the fact is that they've grown very little. So they hide behind their own schemes and deceit, hoping their hypocrisy won't be discovered. But folks, this isn't the life of rest and peace that Christ promised us. God never intended for us to live the Christian life by our own efforts. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Have you ever fully yielded yourself to God? By this, I mean, have you earnestly said to him, Lord, my life is completely yours. You can do anything with me you like. I trust you completely. And for that reason, I will no longer worry about anything. I'm going to trust you completely to take care of me, since that's what you've promised to do. Well, once we have stopped wrestling with God for control of our lives, that's when we can enter into a rich Christian experience, one full of joy and peace, one in which we grow at a rapid pace and not by our own effort but because he works so freely in us when we depend on him for everything. After wrestling with God, Jacob's reliance on self began to dissolve. However, the absence of a single mention of God in chapter 34 suggests that Jacob mistakenly assumed this spiritual high point would just carry him through his tomorrows without ongoing daily communion with God. Now, considering that the patriarchs understood the importance of remaining distinct from the Canaanites, one could call into question Dinah's wisdom in this decision she made to socialize with the local women. Her motives for doing this aren't recorded, But the outcome was tragic. We learn that while interacting with the women of Shechem, Dinah was raped, or possibly seduced, the language isn't clear, by Shechem, a local prince and the son of the ruler, Hamor. When Jacob learned what happened to his daughter Dinah, he waited until his sons came home. Many commentators believe Jacob's portrayed unfavorably as being far too passive here. When Dinah's brothers heard the news, they immediately came in from the fields, shocked and furious. Apparently, they'd arrived home just as Shechem and his father Hamor arrived to negotiate with Jacob for Dinah's hand in marriage. He and his father offered Dinah's family a business deal in which they'd pay as large a bride price as requested, possibly to attempt to cover the offense of the rape. And then they also offered in this business deal to become one people with Israel. Doing so would provide Israel with some advantages. But again, the patriarchs clearly understood their call to remain separate from the Canaanites. Well, as we see, the habits of their father had not gone gone unnoticed by Jacob's sons. Their anger over Dinah's rape was justified, and they were right to refuse Shechem's offer. However, they went about it in the wrong way, by deceit. They told Hamor and Shechem that they could only accept the arrangement if all the men among their people were circumcised. It's possible they thought the Shechemites would never agree to such a thing. However, Shechem was so eager to have Dinah that he was able to persuade the townsmen. And while they were still in pain and recovering, two of Dinah's full brothers, Simeon and Levi, attacked and killed every male in Shechem. Then in verse 27, we read that Jacob's sons, apparently that's all of them, plundered the city. The chapter ends with Jacob telling his sons they'd given him a bad name in the land. Oh, it's an ugly story that at best leaves us questioning the wisdom of Jacob's passivity and unquestioningly paints all the other characters at their worst. As previously noted, God appears to be absent, never once being mentioned. You see, Jacob had experienced a climactic experience with god but the truth this chapter illustrates is that relying on yesterday's experiences won't sustain us that's our second principle relying on yesterday's experiences with god will not sustain us have you found that when you talk with some people about their spiritual lives they will always take you back to the time when, the time when God did something wonderful or the time when they encountered him in a special way. Now, while we must give God glory for what he's done in the past and share those experiences with others, our spiritual life will come to a grinding halt if we continue to live in the past. We cannot rely on past experiences for present power in our spiritual lives. This is the reason why I encourage you to take so seriously the questions in each lesson that ask you to apply in some way what you're learning to your present life and circumstances. I hope you've noticed the phrase, be specific, and the words today or this week or in your present life, in many of those questions. Gaining only intellectual information and insights into God's word won't benefit us any more than it did the Pharisees of Jesus' day. Are you willing to be transparent with others about what Christ is actually doing in your life presently? Or do you pride yourself in merely sharing your knowledge and your insights? We'll quickly find our spiritual lives as dry as an unwatered plant if we fail to invite God into our present daily experience. For what do you need to actively depend on God today? Practicing moment-by-moment dependence keeps us spiritually vibrant and growing. God was working to dissolve Jacob's reliance on self and on past experiences. But he also ensured Jacob wouldn't place his confidence in human relationships. Let's look at chapter 35 now. God called Jacob to return to Bethel, the very place Jacob had encountered God when he left Canaan for Paddan around many years earlier. Being back at Bethel would have reminded Jacob of the promises God had made to him there and his faithfulness in keeping them. But as we'll see, God didn't call Jacob back to Bethel only because of his past experience in that location. He called him there to speak to him anew. Before Jacob's family could enter the Lord's presence at Bethel, God instructed Jacob to purify his household. Specifically, he mentions changing their clothes and getting rid of foreign idols. In addition to other things, they apparently considered some of their jewelry to be charms and amulets. Jacob buried all these things under a tree at Shechem. Now, we would expect the locals to seek to destroy them for their horrid deed at Shechem, but instead we're told in verse 5 that the terror of God fell on all the towns around them so that no one pursued them. Thus Jacob and his household arrived at Bethel and built an altar there. God was indeed gracious to them. And as it turns out, this is a chapter, chapter 35, that highlights many of those highs but also many lows in Jacob's life. At Bethel, we learn, Rebecca's nurse, Deborah, died and was buried. Either Rebecca had sent her to help care for her grandchildren, or she'd come to Jacob's household following Rebecca's death. The mention of Deborah's death is evidence that she was greatly valued by Jacob and his family. But that low point is followed by Jacob encountering the Lord anew, reaffirming the reaffirming of Jacob's name change and the re- restating of all God's covenant promises. Jacob counted this special Christophany among the high points of his life. On his deathbed, he recalled these appearances with special fondness. Following the wonderful appearance of the Lord at Bethel, Chapter 35 concludes by telling of three great losses that Jacob suffered. First, Rachel, Jacob's most beloved wife, died giving birth to her second son, Benjamin. With Benjamin's birth, Jacob had 12 sons, a number that holds significance in the Bible. And as you may know, Jacob's sons became the 12 tribes of Israel. But sadly, Jacob, uh, Rachel, excuse me, Rachel died near Ephrath, an ancient name for Bethlehem. Second, we learn that Jacob's eldest son, Reuben, slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah. Now, Bilhah had been Rachel's servant. Suggestions about why Reuben did this include the possibility that he was concerned Bilhah might replace Rachel as his father's favorite wife. Reuben, as we remember, was the son of Leah, whom Jacob had not loved as he loved Rachel. Another suggestion is that he was attempting to replace his father as patriarch prematurely. But, as it turned out, Reuben's birthright was actually taken from him. Next in line would have been Simeon and Levi in that order, but both of these sons had also disgraced their father. So, so, take note, We're meant to understand that Leah's fourth son, Judah, was from this time forward considered heir to family rulership and birthright. And indeed, Judah was honored by God as the ancestor of King David and his royal line, but most importantly, as the ancestor of Jesus Christ. However, as our study goes on, we'll see that Rachel's eldest son, Joseph, would also lead his family, and it was he, in fact, who was blessed by Jacob with the firstborn's double portion, that portion that Reuben lost. In addition to the losses of Deborah and Rachel and the permanent wedge driven between Jacob and Reuben, Jacob also suffered the loss of his father, Isaac. Isaac, we're told, lived to be 180 years. He was old and full of years when he was gathered to his people. Now, true to the form of Genesis, the genealogy of the non-elect brother, Esau, is given in chapter 36 before the story of the elect brother, Jacob, and his sons continues. The mention of Esau's foreign wives in chapter 36 is a reminder that Esau had shunned the patriarchal covenant. Just as Lot had moved east because of Abraham's location, uh, had moved east of Abraham's location because their possessions were too great for the land to support both of those households, here we find Esau also relocating east of Jacob. The passage indicates the permanent separation of Jacob from his twin brother, emphasizing that Esau is Edom. In their later history, the Edomites and the Israelites were constantly at war. According to Genesis 35 and 36, Jacob experienced thrills and great disappointments. He would learned not to rely on his own natural abilities. He learned not to rely on past experiences. The loss of so many important personal relationships was also instructive. God's made us relational beings. We should be thankful for the friends and family members he gives us. We should be thankful for the body of Christ and be actively engaged with them. However, there is no one that any of us can count on completely, except God. Some people in our lives are separated from us by life's circumstances. Eventually, we're separated for a season by death. Mature believers learn to look to God and not to any human relationship for their security. You see, the security found in our closest human bonds can't even compare with the security Christ gives to the believer. The security found in our closest human bonds cannot compare with the security Christ gives to the believer. John 17.23 teaches that believers are in Christ. One of my favorite biblical expressions. And Christ is in God. John 10, 28, and 29 records these words of Jesus concerning us Who are his sheep? No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one will snatch them out of my Father's hands. You see, we who are believers are in Christ, and he is in the Father. That is tremendous security. Consider for a moment, won't you, the relationships in which you may be placing your confidence. To whom do you tend to run when you have trouble, when you feel down? Do you tend to run to your Isaac? your physical or spiritual parent or mentor, a person who shares and knows your dreams? Do you tend to rely on your Rachel, your spouse, the person you most admire? Is your security in your Reuben, the person you've invested yourself in, your child, the hope of your future? No human relationship can offer us the kind of security that we find in God through Christ. He offers us a life of joy and peace. We'll never find these by relying on our own efforts, by relying on yesterday's victories, or by placing our security in people around us. We enter the abundant life by utter moment-by-moment dependence on God. Over many years, Jacob was learning this secret to a happy Christian life. If it seems that God is fighting against you by your increasing difficulties, remember that he is also fighting for you with his mighty right arm. He's fully committed to bringing us into that abundant, happy life of joy and peace.